We have been studying through the book of Romans for quite some time now. The Apostle Paul writing it to the church in Rome. He's never visited there, hasn't been there, didn't plant the church, knows the people, knows the composition of the church, just like any church, very diverse people. In that context, in that time, you had Jew and Gentile, Jew and non-Jew, two totally radically different groups of people that in the world did not get along, did not particularly care for each other, had animosity toward each other, but then God brings them into the church and Paul has been showing them that grace, the grace of God is what brings them together. The mercy of God brings them together. So the whole book of Romans has really captured for us this understanding of salvation being saved by grace. And then out of that grace, once we've understood that we're not saved by our performance of doing the right rituals in the right way at the right time and going through all those motions that we're not saved by that. Once you come to that, it's very freeing. And so Paul has shown us then how grace, how understanding that grace impacts our church, impacts our lives, impacts our relationships, even with the government. Even God, as as he's changing, we learned in chapter 12, God begins to transform us by renewing our minds, by making us, showing us how to think differently than the world thinks. The world, don't take your cues from the world, please. The world has its way of thinking, its way of operating. God has his way of thinking and operating. And those two, you can bet if the world is doing it or if the world is approving it, if you stand against it, you'll probably be close to God in that. Whatever the world does or embraces, it's probably not of God because we live in a world that has rebelled largely against God. So Paul says, look, church, we shouldn't take our cues from the world. We should be different. We expect this community to be a different kind of community. So even the way we deal with something like taxes, we even have a sanctified way of looking at even paying taxes. And Paul has started chapter 13 by talking about obeying ruling authorities, dealing with rebellion in our lives because the authorities are from God. So to rebel against authorities, to rebel against God, and the ultimate authority is God, then all ruling authorities from the referee on the soccer field to the sheriff to the military, those are under and accountable to the authority of God. So you have God at the top, then you have any ruling authority, including husbands and fathers, they're under God. We are one nation where? Under God. I believe that's still said, right? Even if maybe it's not believed, but we still say it. One nation under God. That speaks of God's authority, or at least supposed authority in our lives and in our nation. One nation under God. And then we have us that are citizens and we are under that governing authority. We're to obey and support and encourage that governing authority. And the challenge comes when that governing authority decides to take matters into its own hands, steps out from under God, and now we're left with a choice. The authorities that we're supposed to be subject to say, you should obey us even though we're not accountable to God. God says one thing, authorities say another, and we're stuck in this dilemma. And there's a place, biblically, and these are exceptions for the most part for us, there's a place for what we would call a respectful, civil disobedience. The apostles had to deal with that in the early church. They were told, don't you guys go spreading that message about Jesus. And they said, well, we appreciate it, what you're saying, but we can't obey it. Because Jesus said, go in all the world and preach the gospel. 
So when man and God differ, we have to obey God. If there was a law that was passed that I can't preach from the Bible on Sunday morning, I would have to respectfully disobey that commandment. And if that was the law, then I'd have to start a new prison ministry. And you'd have to come visit me. You would visit me, wouldn't you? You would visit me. So these are difficult things we deal with in life. I have a friend here in the church that I can't remember. I was trying to remember who told me the story, but a guy that I know in the church was telling me about a friend of his when he was growing up who went on to become a pretty zealous Christian, zealous in an unbiblical way in that he chose to take it upon himself to bomb an abortion clinic. He really did. And of course, he was arrested and imprisoned. Now, the sentiment may be in the right place in terms of wanting to fight for the truth of the right for life and that sort of thing, but he skipped a very important part of Romans chapter 13. He missed verses 8 through 14, which is what we're going to read this morning. So ending up with this discussion of rendering to all those people what is due them, taxes to who we owe taxes to, and even honor to whom we owe honor due. The Bible says, honor your father and your mother. You may not agree with them. There may be some issues there, but you still owe them honor by the place they hold. When you get pulled over by a state trooper or a Fluvanna County Sheriff's deputy, you're pretty respectful usually, right? Because you're hoping not to get the ticket, but there's a respect that comes with the uniform. So you pay honor to whom honor is due. And so Paul has laid that out for us as Christians. Then verse eight of chapter 13, he says, speaking of owing, speaking of debt, he says, owe no one anything except to love one another for he who loves another has fulfilled the law. Now, I don't often do this, uh, but when it lends itself to it, I don't mind having an outline for our section. So this morning's half a chapter, this section really lends itself to three points that work well together. The first section we'll look at, Paul is telling the people in Rome to pay up. The next section we'll look at, Paul is telling the Christians in Rome to wake up. And by the time we get there, I may be telling some of you to wake up. And then he is telling the Christians in Rome to suit up. So again, I don't often do that, but it works out well for the passage. And if you like to take notes, if you're keeping a journal, you can write those things down. Pay up, wake up, suit up. So the first thing he says in verse 8 is, Oh, no one anything except to love one another. If you could read it in Greek, it would say, Keep owing no one anything except love. It's a command. It's an imperative. It's an imperative. Paul would say it's imperative that you do this. So some have looked at this passage and said, you know what? This really means that we should never have a mortgage or we should never have a car loan because it says, owe no one anything except the love. Now, I think being debt-free is a wonderful way to live. Anybody out there that could say, amen, that's a great way to live debt-free? It's a great way to live debt-free, but a lot of people have debt. And what Paul is saying is that whatever the debt is that you owe, pay it. Pay people in your life that you owe a debt to. If you have someone come do work for you, pay what you owe them. Pay your debts. Now, again, I've had people tell me, like, okay, pastor, you built this church. Now, do you have a mortgage on that church? So yeah, we got a mortgage. We've been paying it. We pay a little over, typically, our mortgage every month. And, and we've been saving for the parking lot thing. And yeah, we have a mortgage, but we pay it every month. And I said, well, I don't think it's a biblical thing to have a mortgage. I don't think you should have a mortgage. And I say, well, do you have a mortgage for your house? Well, yeah, I have a mortgage, but I don't think the church should have a mortgage. Well, you are the church. I mean, you, the church is not a building. The church is people. 
And it's inconsistent for you to say, well, I can have a mortgage, but I don't think the church should. I don't think the church should either. I think it'd be great to be debt-free. And if every Christian gave 10%, we wouldn't have to have a mortgage. I'm just saying, I'm just saying. But God has been gracious. And so I don't stretch this to mean that you can never have a mortgage. I think if you can not have a mortgage or a car loan, I haven't had a car loan since 19, I don't know, 98 or something like that. And it's great to not have car loan. It's great. So do in your life with your credit cards and all, pay off what you owe and work toward living simply and getting out of debt. Because the Bible says the one who borrows is a slave to the one who owns, the one who lends. So if you can get away from that, like sometimes, you know, it's I owe, I owe, it's off to work, I go. You know the saying. And so eventually, you know, you can work to getting your debt paid off again. I'm a great day. I have, you know, you guys know my pickup truck. My wife has it now. And that, that old gray one, 1993. Yeah, you know, I paid $11,000 for that in 1994 as a leftover from 93. Been driving that thing ever since. And I haven't had a payment on it in years. And when I got the pink slip for that, when I paid it off, it's like, oh, happy day. Because otherwise you got the little booklet and every month. You're writing that check and every month. So to pay that thing off was great. But there's a debt, Paul says, that everybody has that no matter how many payments you make, you'll never pay it off. Did you see that? He says, oh, no one anything except to love one another. This debt that we all have is payable to each other. And every day we might make a payment today, but then tomorrow morning, guess what? We wake up and the debt is still there. How many of you have in your life looked at loving your neighbor as a debt that you owe versus a, a command I'm supposed to keep? See, remember, you had a debt you couldn't pay. You had a debt to God. Your sin was unaccountable for in your life. You could not pay God. Matter of fact, here's the problem. In God's economy, the payment for our sin debt is not gold or silver. You can't pay off God for your salvation with money. The payment for sin is blood. That's the currency of salvation. And it has to be pure blood, sinless blood. And so we had a debt that we were unable to pay, unqualified to pay, and didn't even have enough to pay it. So we've been given this gift of salvation. And so we have this debt because of the love of God for us. We have a similar debt to everybody else we meet to love them. Now, this is a radical thing because I've never looked at, till I read this, I never looked at love as being a debt that I owe one another and really to owe everybody this debt of love. Now, here's a problem I see in the world that we live in because it says continue to love each other. The problem is we're living in this time when people are talking about, and maybe you've heard the word, neo-tribalism. Anybody heard that word? Neo means new, and tribal means my group. So sociologists are looking at these behaviors. Is, have you noticed that things seem like they're becoming more divided? Let's just talk politics for a minute. I mean, you know, we bit it off in the first part of this chapter. Let's just keep chewing on it for a little bit. Would you say that there's division among political parties in our country? Would you say that that division is a, a loving, courteous division? Or would you say it's a little bit different than that? Yeah, it's different than that. You see, here's the problem. We look at this and the world talks a lot about love, right? Don't people talk about love? We go to the downtown mall and we share Jesus with people. and They say, well, we just think people should love each other. 
And what they really mean is we think people should love each other, but we're only going to love people that are in our tribe. See, if my tribe is Democrats, I'm going to love Democrats, but I got issues with Republicans. And if my tribe is Republicans, then I got issues with Democrats. And look, the point of this is not that we won't have issues with each other. This is the real beauty of it. If you really want to work on living life on a higher plane, if you really want to work on what I would call a social skill that very few people have the capacity to embrace and have embraced, it's the ability to disagree with someone and still love them. I go to pastor's meetings with guys from different denominations, denominations that would be, yes, yeah, so here we go again. There's liberal and conservative. If I'm in the conservative camp, well, I don't, no, no, no. You're liberal. No, sorry. We can't have conversation. But so I go, I cross those lines on purpose. And it's important that I do. Do you know why? Because I need to demonstrate in my own life that I can love you and should love you, even though we disagree on some theological and doctrinal points. We have to cross those boundaries. Think about it. We've got Democrat, Republic. We've got black against white. We've got racial stuff. We've got the LGBT community against the conservative community. We've got atheists against believers. We've got evolutionists against creationists. And we've got all these different labels and we've tribalized to the point where we legitimize hatred for someone who's of another tribe. You probably should say amen to that. So what do we do? Well, it's the story of a young man that was in our church not too long ago I won't mention his name, but maybe some of you remember, I've told the story sometimes uh, because it's such a powerful one, and I think it rings true in the life of our church. Young man came, after being here some time, confessed to being a homosexual. And so, you know, we would fall in that category of conservative church, and so this presented a challenge in some ways for us as a body. You know, well, can he come? Can he not come? What's the situation? Well, see, we don't check sin cards at the door. See, we don't know what your particular gig is where your particular deal is. And listen, the day this place stops being a hospital for sinners is the day we should close the door. The day Jesus is no longer a friend to sinners, and that's not demonstrated here among us, is the day, again, we stop representing Jesus. So he comes in, and our challenge is to say, you know, we disagree with, uh, and, and the Bible would call sin your lifestyle, just like many in here have been in adulterous relationships, many who are involved in physical or intimate relationships outside of wedlock. These are all under that great, big, all-encompassing category we call sin, and we've all fallen into it. That's what Paul has been telling us. So when someone who falls into that category comes in, shouldn't we celebrate and then they say, well, are we allowed? Am I allowed to be here? Absolutely, you're allowed to be here. The question I have is, am I allowed to preach the truth in love? And that's where we have this relationship. You are absolutely welcome to come in here. Bring all of your sin. Jesus is not scared of any of it. Again, he welcomes you. He beckons you to come to him with it. And then truth shared in love begins to heal, begins to nurture begins to help. And so as we learned to love this young man, we did it so well as a church that as he had to leave, it was time for him to move on. Do you know what he said? He said to me, you know, I would live celibate if that's what it took to keep attending this church. And I said, when he told me that, my heart just was so helped by that. I thought, you know, church, we did something right. See, we were able to love someone as a group. This is just one example, but this is us, right? 
We're able to love someone with whom we disagree. I don't have to fix you or get you on my side before I love you. See, that's the debt Paul is talking about. We have this debt. This can be between denominations, right? When we see this happen, well, here's an example I can give you of this. A man tells a story of walking across a bridge one day, and he saw a man standing on the edge about to jump. I ran over to him, he said, and I said, stop, don't do it. Why shouldn't I, he asked. Well, there's so much to live for. Like what? Are you religious? He said, yes. I said, me too. Are you a Christian or a Buddhist? Christian. Well, me too. Are you Catholic or Protestant? I'm Protestant. Oh, me too. Are you Episcopalian or Baptist? I'm Baptist. Wow, me too. Are you Baptist Church of God or Baptist Church of the Lord? I'm Baptist Church of God. Well, me too. Are you original Baptist Church of God or are you reformed Baptist Church of God? Well, I'm reformed Baptist Church of God. Me too. Are you reformed Baptist Church of God, Reformation 1879? Or are you Reformed Baptist Church of God, Reformation 1915? He said, Reformed Baptist Church of God, Reformation 1915. I said, die, heretic scum, and I pushed him off. (laughs) So that's a funny example to show the very real truth that Paul is saying is we sometimes legitimize our distance or our hatred or our withholding of love. People deserve love not because they do what we expect them to do or they even do what we want them to do or they even agree with what we say or believe. We owe people a debt of love because they're human and they're created in the image of God and is a very human and godly thing for you and I to love, especially people we disagree with, especially. He who loves another has fulfilled the law. You see, this is exactly the Jew would be saying, well, we keep the law. Paul would say, you want to talk about the law? You want to talk about keeping the law? All the moral law of God has pointed to one singular laser focus, and it can be summed up in one word. Do you know what that love is? Did I just give it away? Do you know what that word is? Man, I got excited. The word is love. Look what he says. For the commandments, you shall not commit adultery, You shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not bear false witness, you shall not covet. And if there's any other commandment, all are summed up in this saying, namely, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Love does no harm to a neighbor. Therefore, love is the fulfillment of the law. So many people get tied up in their lives with, well, I don't do this and I don't do that. I don't smoke and I don't chew and I don't go with girls that do. You know that old saying. We get wrapped up in all that we don't do, right? We define ourselves sometimes by the things we abstain from. You see, it's real easy to defend our self-righteousness by all the things we avoid. But the book of James says, for him who knows to do good and does it not, to him that is sin. To withhold love is to break God's law and to sin. Because he says, the heart of the moral law of God is that we would love each other. And that's what Jesus said, and that's what Paul confirms. Love your neighbor as yourself. Because if you're loving your neighbor, you don't steal his wife. If you love your neighbor, and your neighbor, come on, can we talk about like who is your neighbor? Jesus asked that question. Your neighbor is that person who's closest to you in need. 
Your neighbor is your kids, your spouse, the person who lives next door to you, the person you come across in the road, the person who shows up in the church on a Sunday morning, the person you work with, whoever you're close to at that time, they are your neighbor at that time. And he says, if you love your neighbor as yourself, then you don't steal from your neighbor at work. If you love them, love doesn't steal. Love doesn't lie about them. So if you love, this is the human part of the law. There's the God part. The first four commandments have to do with man's relationship with God. The second part, the sixth, have to do with our relationship with each other. And Paul says, look, forget about trying to memorize all those commandments. I'm not supposed to do this. I'm not supposed to do that. Forget about that. Just memorize one word, and that word is love. If you could memorize and live by that one word, then Paul says, even if, you, even if there was a commandment you forgot or you didn't know it, and you loved somebody, you would still be in line with the heart of God. You would be keeping even commandments you didn't even know about just by loving somebody because that's the fulfillment. That's always been, always will be the heart of God. So therefore, love is where the law has always pointed. Are we clear on that? So Paul says, look, gang, the debt that we owe, the debt that can never be fully paid is the debt of love. And that love is not restricted to people in our tribe. Amen? Now, Paul recognizes that as he teaches this, he knows this is uh, challenging them. He knows this is maybe different than they've been thinking. And so he says to them, verse 11, now he's going to tell them to wake up. He says, and do this, all these things that I've just told you to do, loving your neighbor, not stealing from them, not doing, you know, taking care of, of those people around you. He says, do this knowing the time that now is high time to awake out of sleep. For now our salvation is nearer than when we first believed. Now, wait a second, Pastor. I got saved in 1975 at a Billy Graham crusade. What's he saying? My salvation is nearer now than when I first believed. I thought I got saved when I believed. Yes, you did get saved when you believed, but we're still here in these bodies on planet Earth dealing with sin in our lives and dealing with sin in our world. Someday when Jesus comes back, that's what we're waiting for. He came once, we celebrate Christmas. Guess what? He's coming again. And we're supposed to be ready for him to come again. And when he comes again, that's when our salvation will be made complete. And he'll set up ultimately his reign, rule and reign on the earth as the Lord of all the earth. So Paul is saying, do this knowing the time, not what time is it right now, but what time is it? Hey, it's time to wake up. You ever told your kids, hey, it's time to go. That's a kind of time. That's what this means. Knowing the times that we live in, knowing it's time to awake out of sleep because we're closer to the end than we've ever been before. If Paul wrote they were nearer when he wrote this to the Romans 2,000 years ago, wouldn't you say we're probably nearer now than then? I mean, we're still waiting. 2,000 years have gone by. And man, have you watched the news lately? We're having increases in wars and rumors of wars. We're having increases in natural disasters and the severity of natural disasters. The labor pains of this new era, the new age are increasing. And gang, Paul says, it's time to wake up. You see, as a pastor, we uh, have come to understand this concept this phenomenon of what we call the CDE Christian. Have you heard of that? Used to be just the C and E Christians. C stands for Christmas. E stands for Easter. So there were the C and E Christians, those that just showed up to church on Christmas and Easter. And of course, none of them are here today. 
but they might listen on the radio. But later on, this D was added. The D stands for disaster. So these are folks that show up for church at Christmas. They show up at Easter and they show up when there's a disaster because a disaster makes us do what? Makes us wake up. I see it at funerals. I am involved with a lot of people's lives, their lives and their deaths and deaths of loved ones. And so I see that, man, when it's a funeral, especially when it's been a car accident, something that jars our community. We've had one not too long ago. People wake up and they go, whoa, like I'm not immortal. Like I'm not going to live forever. I have these big questions of my life to ask. Like, why am I alive? And what am I doing with my life? And what happens when I die? And is there really eternity? And so there's like this moment of awakeness, like the alarm has gone off and I'm awake and I'm engaged. I'm going, and then they'll come up to me after the funeral and say, I just really need to get my life right with God. Like, I really need to get back to church. And guess how many weeks I see them? Like maybe two. Because they've hit the snooze button on life and they've gone back to sleep. You see, the alarm went off. They hit snooze, back to sleep until the next funeral or the next disaster. And so Paul is saying to the church, he's saying, look, recognize the times that we live in. It's like he's saying to them, you've not been doing the things that you're supposed to. You've been sleepwalking. You've been playing religion but you've been asleep. It's going through the motions. You're sleepwalking in a sense. Christian zombies, I guess you could say. He says the night is far spent. I mean, the night is when darkness is in the world. And the night, he says, when darkness rules, that's coming to an end. I mean, we live in a place right now, in a way right now, that darkness kind of rules the earth, doesn't it? The Bible says, John, 1 John chapter 5, I believe it is, says the whole world lies under the sway of the wicked one. I mean, again, you don't have to go farther than the evening news, the morning news, the internet feed to see what's going on in our world, the corruption, the anger, the hatred, the violence. So wake up, he says, and know that that era, that age is coming to an end. And everything that's connected to that age is coming to an end. The night is far spent. The day is at hand. In other words, just like at night you go to sleep, The morning time comes, you realize, hey, you get up in the morning, you see the sun coming up. Hey, it's daytime. It's a new thing. He says, therefore, let us cast off the works of darkness and let us put on the armor of light. So he starts talking about clothing. And we talk about nighttime and morning time. Do you know that your body, you have a way to discharge all of the muscular and cellular waste products of your body. You know, you have a lymph system in your body. And the job of your body's lymph system is to get rid of all the cellular waste. You know, you run somewhere and then your legs start to cramp up and that's because you got lactic acid in there and your body has to deal with that. Well, your brain doesn't have a lymph system. So all day long, your brain is amassing all this cellular waste and that's why you feel groggy and confused or a little fuzzy at night. So when you go to sleep, that's when your brain gets to rest. I mean, some of yours was resting all day. I know that, but at night, theoretically, is when your brain gets to rest, and that's when your body, through your cerebrospinal fluid, discharges all that waste. So at night, you need sleep. Like God designed you to sleep, and darkness is the time when people sleep. But when it's light out, your brain's been recharged, you wake up, it's time to get going. Now, how many of you have overslept? How many of you know that feeling of the alarm goes off, you hit snooze, then you wake up and you realize you're late? And then the frantic things start and you're running around the house trying to grab shoes and find socks and get the coffee. And it's just a crazy feeling. Well, Paul's telling us the same thing. He says, look, 
You're oversleeping. You missed the alarm. It's time to wake up and get dressed. Like, I'm so thankful that when you woke up this morning, you looked in the mirror, most of you, and you groomed what needed to be groomed. You shaved what needed to be shaved. You primped what needed to be primped. I don't know what you did. And you got out of your pajamas. Thank you. You know, I really considered coming to church today in my pajamas. I really did. I really did. But I didn't, obviously. But there's certain, (laughs) thank me, right. There are certain clothing that's connected with nighttime. At night, you put on pajamas and you go to bed. There's clothing appropriate to that occasion. And then when you wake up, you've got a job to do. There's clothing appropriate to that occasion. And so Paul is telling us that the clothing that we talk about is not physical clothing that we wear, but he's talking about behaviors that we put on and off like clothing. The word cast off the works of darkness, the word cast off is literally a word that means like taking off a set of clothes. So when the day comes, you take those clothes that are connected with darkness, those behaviors, and you get rid of those. Why? Because it's daytime. And you put on new clothes. He says, put on the armor of light. I like that. I like the word armor. So it's like you're a military guy. Imagine you join the Navy. You end up getting into the Navy SEALs. And there you are. It's time. They get up early for uh, all their stuff. They're crazy guys. Man, they are are amazing. But imagine showing up at 4.30 a.m. for a roll call or whatever they do, and you decided to wear your pajamas. How long do you think you're going to last in the Navy SEALs when you say, you know, I think I'm just going to battle in pajamas today? Like, are you kidding me? Do you not know we are at war, son? You know, what are you doing? Get off those clothes and get on your armor. That just makes sense. You see, your identity, listen carefully. Your identity is what directs your behavior. What you believe you are and who you are determines what you wear. You see, if I get a job for UPS, then I'm going to get a uniform that is suitable to that job, right? I'll get the whole brown getup thing, right? I get the brown pants, the brown shirt, the logo, you know, the brown truck, get the whole deal. So if I show up here and I've got all my brown stuff on and with the UPS uniform on, you'd be like, Steve, what's the deal? Like, you're, did you get a job for UPS? And I'd say, no, I just like the clothes. You'd think I was a lunatic. You know, in high school, if you can remember back to your high school days, I was in high school in the 70s and we used to call people that wore clothes inconsistent with their behavior, we used to call them posers. They were posing as something they really weren't. Then it was like skateboarders, you know, like some guy would wear all the clothing that was consistent with being a skate rat, skateboarder. But if you didn't own a skateboard, it's like, what are you doing? Why are you trying to be something you're not? And it's confusing. But if I switch jobs, if I move from UPS to Chick-fil-A, guess what? I got to get a new uniform, right? They're not going to let me work at Chick-fil-A with a UPS uniform on. So you know, and you see that who I am dictates what I wear. And see, the problem is the church has been confusing the world for a long time. We say we're people that walk in the light. The problem is we wear all this clothing that's connected to darkness. Our behaviors don't match what we are and who we are. And that's why he says here, put off these works of darkness and put on the armor of light. Let us walk properly. In other words, getting things in order. The word properly means to put yourself together like you did this morning when you woke up. You were all mess, hair every direction, and things just out of order. Your eyes just like all glossy. And but So you got it together, right? You got together and here you are, you showed up. So Paul says, let us walk properly as in the day, not in, and he lists some things, revelry, 
That's drinking, partying, drunkenness, not in lewdness. That's an interesting word. The word in Greek is koite. It means bed. It means that you're sleeping in the wrong bed. In other words, someone who might be committing adultery or might be sleeping in intimacy with someone who is not their spouse. So that's what this word would encompass. And then the word lust is even more interestingly, it means to be without continence. How about that for a Greek word? So we would extrapolate that and take it to mean without control, without self-control. So someone who is lusting is someone who has lost all control. They're doing things in the daytime that they should be embarrassed about. And we see that in our world, do we not? So these are things that are connected with darkness, not in strife and in envy. And then he says, but put on the Lord Jesus Christ. So he's synonymous with the armor of light, walking in truth, knowing the truth, walking in the open. If you've got to do something in secret, if you've got to do it in the darkness, if you've got to do it when no one else is looking, if you've got to hide it, you probably shouldn't do it. I worked in bars for a lot of years. Bars thrive on what? Darkness or light? You know the way to get everybody to go home at 2 a.m. after the bar closes? Turn on the lights. How'd you guys know that? Wait a second. How did you know that? Right on. So, you know, these are things that happen in darkness. And we are not children of darkness. You don't have to hide when you love people. And so Paul says to me and to you, he says, put on Jesus Christ as your identity. That's who you are. Get that settled. I am Jesus Christ. I am in him. He is in me. That's who I am. And therefore, my clothing should line up with my identity. If I get Chick-fil-A, I got to put off the UPS outfit and I got to put on my Chick-fil-A gear. And the interesting thing is he says, and make no provision for the flesh to fulfill its lust. So even though I'm wearing, I got my Jesus clothes on, there are still some things. If I'm at Chick-fil-A now, but man, I still love packages. I just, I get this hankering to deliver packages still. So you know what I do? I hide a few packages in my trunk and then I, uh, after work, I deliver them. I put the uniform back on and I go deliver them. I don't tell anybody at Chick-fil-A I do it. I keep it secret. You see, here's the thing about lust on a serious note for a minute. It says, make no provision for the lust to fulfill its lust. Have you learned that the lust of your flesh will never be satisfied? No matter how hard you try, no matter how much you do, your flesh will always demand more. If you give it six beers, and I see Food Lion on Friday afternoon, Friday payday, five o'clock, everybody's going to Food Lion. People are walking, lining up in the line with their cases of beer, their hard ciders, whatever they got, because they're making provision for the weekend. And Paul says, look, if it's six beers today, six beers won't satisfy tomorrow. If it's one joint today, one joint ain't going to satisfy tomorrow. That lust, that desire will never be satisfied. So Paul says, put on Christ. He's the only one that will satisfy you. To make provision means to give forethought to. You see, for some of us, we make a way so we can do some good works, but we also make a way to, well, it's another credit card because I got spending issues. So I, I ordered just another credit card, and another credit card, and I make provision for this desire of mine to shop and spend because I've got some issue that I'm trying to satisfy, some deep pain or whatever it is, but I make provision for it. Or, you know, I get stressed out at work all week, so on the way home, I'm going to stop. And I know I've got alcohol problems, or maybe I'm not admitting it, but I'm going to buy that six-pack. I know I shouldn't, but I'm going to get it, and I only drink one at a time. 
But then by the end of the night, they're gone. One at a time. I've heard that, believe it or not. So Paul is calling us as Christians. At the end of chapter 13, he's saying, look, put on the behaviors that are consistent with who you are. And the things that aren't consistent with living a life that is out in the open, that is in the light, put them off. He doesn't say pray about it. He doesn't say get healing for it. He says, it's your choice. These are in the middle voice, meaning you can do this. He says, don't make provision. If you know it's a weakness, if you know the computer's a weakness, he says, get rid of it. Don't make a provision because you know you're, you're already giving thought to it. How am I going to? When am I going to? The first step to overcoming any addiction is to stop making provision for it. 